Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 36 on AFI's Top 100. The film is 1957's The Bridge on the River Kwai. River Kwai. It's a long movie, Ethan. This this is indeed a long film. It's uh, just under three hours, but I will say that I don't really see where one would cut anything. Yeah, you know, this film, uh, it is appropriately almost three hours long. Had you seen this one before? I have not. I had heard from several people that it would be a film that I liked. I think they were largely correct. Yeah, I suspected you would like it as well. So I'm curious, what would you think I would like about this film? Well, it's a war film. <laughs> is it? Is it though? Not really, actually. I mean, it, it truly is not that much about the war. Although the characters are soldiers uh, and there is a lot of discussion of war and I, I, I guess warriors. Is that what you would call soldiers i don't know yeah i think soldiers is probably the term here but let's have that act as a nice little teaser before we get to any of that let's get a plot synopsis all right let's do it bridge on the river kwai is the story of commander shears an american pow and lieutenant colonel nicholson a british pow men captured in burma by the japanese during World War II, Nicholson arrives at a Japanese POW camp with his men and is tasked to help build a bridge, as you guessed it, over the river Kwai. Saito, the Japanese colonel in charge of the camp, insists that all the newly arrived prisoners must build the bridge, but Nicholson protests as the Geneva Convention instructs that officers may not take part in POW labor. Saito sends the soldiers away, the lower soldiers, and plans to kill the officers as Shears and the other sick men look on from the infirmary, but Nicholson's doctor runs out and insists that if Saito murders the officers, the sick men will bear witness. Saito backs off, but leaves the officers to stand in the sun all day. After a long and hot day, Saito puts the officers in a punishment hut, which is really where I live anytime we work on this podcast, <laughs> and places Nicholson in a hot box. Uh, Nicholson stands strong and refuses to let his officers work, insisting on the rule of law. Saito becomes more and more anxious because if he does not finish the bridge in time, he must commit ritual suicide. Later, he saves face by offering the officers amnesty on the anniversary of the Russo-Japanese War. Shears and two other men attempt escape, which Nicholson has forbidden due to his strict adherence to orders as his company was ordered to surrender. And though the other two men die, Shears escapes to a small village and eventually is taken to a British hospital. Nicholson, meanwhile, is put in charge of the bridge and moves the site downriver to a more steady location and forces his men to stop working poorly, hoping that the bridge will benefit the Burmese people after the war. He also hopes to show up the Japanese by building a better bridge than they ever could have. 
Meanwhile, Shears is recruited to help a small unit of commandos destroy the bridge. He's reluctant to do so and reveals that he impersonated a dead officer in order to receive better treatment from the Japanese, though it didn't actually help him in the camp. The British, of course, already know about his impersonation, and Shears discovers that the Americans have traded him to the Brits to avoid any embarrassment involved in his impersonation. He's thus forced to help. The four commandos parachute in, and though one is killed and another is wounded, they are able to set up the charges on the completed bridge. As they wait for a train to arrive on the bridge carrying Japanese supplies the next day, the water level drops, revealing the work of the commandos. Nicholson, on the bridge, admiring it, discovers it and reveals the problem to the Japanese, not realizing that the Brits are there to destroy the bridge. The commandos kill Saito, uh, but Nicholson resists them, not realizing who they are. He finally recognizes Shears during this chaos, though Shears is shot. The final remaining commando shoots a mortar at Shears and Nicholson, and Nicholson falls on the explosives plunger as he dies, destroying the bridge and the train. The commando apologizes to his Burmese helpers for having to kill the men, and as the film ends, Nicholson's doctor comments on the madness of the situation. Ethan, I think you're being a little too easy on Nicholson here. You think so? You're giving him the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't know who the commandos are or what they're here to do, but we get dialogue from Nicholson saying... They're going to mine the bridge. They're going to blow up the bridge. And he's so obsessed about this completion of this bridge that he's actively resisting his own government and their agents in this until that last minute. That's why he says, oh, what have I done? And then he gets killed by the mortar and serendipitously also blows the bridge. See, I wasn't sure that that was what was happening at the end. I was kind of confused so yeah i I mean i guess then he is he is like nuts right so warden or sorry is it warden or warder no i think it's Uh, warden Warden, it's warden warden says he's gone mad and that's when he's tracing out the line with saito and says someone has planted charges on the bridge and follows it to a british commando and that one is joyce the young one right who they don't know if he can kill or not. And he kills Saito. So that's fulfilled. But then he says, sir, I'm British officer, Lieutenant Joyce. What are they? S O E, right? Special operative. I don't know. (laughs) And Nicholson is just so taken with the bridge, right? This big project they've been doing in captivity that he still is fighting against them, even though he's now actively, impeding the war efforts and is technically a traitor in this moment see i guess maybe i was just i guess i was giving him the benefit of the doubt because i assumed he didn't understand what uh joyce was saying to him right i just guess i sort of assumed yeah i just assumed that he misunderstood what was going on and and i don't know i guess i thought maybe he thought it was the burmese trying to blow up the bridge because i mean i guess he sees the bridge right as some sort of a weird British legacy. I mean, it's it's imperialist, but I think he sees it as like a, a benefit in some way with the assumption that the, you know, the allies will win the war. I don't know. I guess I, I kind of liked him. I don't know. Well, I think this is the crux of the movie 
is that you still empathize with Nicholson, even though he seems crazy at times or seems unreasonable or others too much letter of the law, not enough spirit. And he, you know, becomes a traitor at the end. I think he is given a pretty generous farewell because he has the realization that he's actually betraying his his country and then says, oh, no, what have I done? And then dies to the mortar and blows the bridge. So he gets the benefit of both intention. He was going to blow the bridge. He was moving to go do that as that happens. And the consequence in that the bridge actually gets destroyed, even though those two are not connected, right? Because he gets killed and just falls on it, happens to falls on it. But we get that not neat, but pretty, pretty generous ending for Nicholson here. Well, I guess I wanted him to not, I wanted him to, to, to want to destroy the bridge at the end. Like I wanted him to have good intentions and not just be obsessed with the bridge. And so maybe that colored my reading. Well, he does. It's just at that very last moment that he gets to experience the, what you might think, appropriate desire for country and allied war effort. But all before this, it's about we're going to finish this bridge, show these Japanese that we are still British soldiers. We're not slaves. We're not prisoners. And then they get to put that plaque on the bridge. And that's why it's one of the final shots of the film is the the plaque in the water from the destroyed bridge. I mean, because if we see him as not if we see him as being so obsessed with the bridge that he would resist the, the Brits to the Brits attempts to destroy it, then he is. And then, then that, that last bit of uh, redemption, I think is bunk and it's bullshit. And he doesn't get, you know what I mean? He shouldn't get that then. Right. Why is that? Well, because at the end of the day, then, then he is a traitor and he's helped the Japanese and he has no idea that they're going to win the war. Right. Then, then he is the, the ultimate, well, I mean, maybe not the villain of the film, but he's not the protagonist. Well, he's he's definitely the protagonist. The protagonist is just the character who we are following oh, yeah, and yeah, watching him progress. Right. But he's really not the hero. Yes, that's what I mean. Yes. I guess Shears is the reluctant hero. But of course, Shears dies. So does Nicholson. But Shears dies kind of quickly and is just kind of swept under the rug because the film is really about Nicholson. Right, but but Shears doesn't. I mean, I don't think he's swept under the rug. I think then that he becomes then the true hero of the film, right? Because he's the one who is reluctant at the end, or is reluctant throughout, but at the end does sacrifice himself, right, for the for the thing. I mean, he could have stayed in the woods. And yeah, not- Ethan, but heroes don't die in two seconds, getting shot in the back while crawling through mud, and then are never seen again. I mean, never seen again. That's at the, the that's in the last like minute of the film. That's right. Never- but I'm saying if he's the true hero, then you get a little bit more fanfare for that. He dies pretty ignominiously. I guess. But that so then it truly is about the fall of Nicholson as as this sort of a, a, a obsessive British man. I mean, then it then this becomes a film that that has like not good things to say about the Brits. I guess if he's a stand-in overall for the British. Soldiers. I don't think we have to see it as the British. I think we just see it as somebody kept in captivity. And it's not Stockholm Syndrome, but it's something maybe a near cousin in that the bridge becomes this large icon for him that he's going to 
worship at and work toward and perfect because he's got nothing else. And I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess, having watched this film, it, it, I mean, nothing does get, well, I guess men do, their lives get saved, right? Well, do they? What makes you think that? No. No, we absolutely uh, know that's the negative. Men are supposed to be, uh, well, I guess not then, at the end of the day, because aren't the men supposed to escape? Well, not escape, but they're supposed to be moved on to the next. Here's what happens at the end of the film the train gets dunked into the river, destroyed. You know who's on that train? Is it the men on the train? Are they on the train? All the sick and wounded are on that train. Okay, I wasn't sure about that. At the very end, I was like, is it just supplies or is it the sick and wounded? I was- Remember they had the conversation the night before that Saito is generous enough to get to let, to let them put their sick and wounded on the train? I thought so. I thought so, but I thought maybe that would be the next train. So, yeah. So, then actually at the end of the day, then – I mean if it is the sick and wounded on that, on that particular train and not just the supplies, then at the end of the day, n- nothing – Nothing is done here. We return to stasis. We have destroyed the Japanese ability to carry supplies more quickly, right? We've disrupted their logistics, but most of the commandos die, and all of the British soldiers who are prisoners continue on to another camp where they're almost certainly going to be worked to death. Right. So, so in fact, actually, you're right. Then the commandos die, and they would have not. They would have not died. Well you know assuming they didn't get killed in battle otherwise they would have not died because at the end of the day if they if 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 nicholson had not built the bridge and blown up the train the bridge probably wouldn't have gotten built and the sick and wounded probably would have died anyway but the question you have to ask is if they weren't able to build the bridge would any of them been able to get through it so i think to this end the pivotal scene for this film is when Nicholson decides to take ownership of the bridge. Okay. So let's take a listen. Yeah, let's. I tell you, gentlemen, we have a problem on our hands. Thanks to the Japanese, we now command a rabble. There's no order, no discipline. Our task is to rebuild the battalion. Yes, sir. It isn't going to be easy, but fortunately, we have the means at hand. The bridge. The bridge, sir? The bridge. We can teach these Indians a lesson in Western methods and efficiency that will put them to shame. We'll show them what the British soldier is capable of doing. Yes, I see your point, sir. I realize how difficult it's going to be in this godforsaken place where you can't find what you need. But there's the challenge. I beg your pardon, sir. You mean you really want them to build a bridge? They're not usually so slow in the uptake, Evans. I know our men. You've got to keep them occupied. Fact is, if there weren't any work for them to do, we'd invent some, eh, Reeves? That we would, sir. So we're lucky. But it's going to be a proper bridge. Now, here again, I know the men. It's essential that they should take a pride in their job. Right, gentlemen? Yes, Yes, sir. Reeves, you're the key man in this situation as engineer. Tell me what you want, and Hughes and I will organize it. What do you think? Can we make a go of it? We'll do our best, sir. Fine. We must draw up our plans. Then arrange a conference with Saito and set him straight. The reason I picked this scene is because all of his junior officers, Nicholson's junior officers, like, are you crazy? Why are you going to build the bridge for the enemy effectively? Right. 
And Nicholson's response is, this is how we take control back. We do what we do best. We've got engineers here. We've got hardworking men. They need to be occupied. If we want to get through this imprisonment, we need to have purpose. So he's giving discipline back to the men and he's giving purpose back to himself, which I think ultimately is what this film is about is how Nicholson finds purpose. And then in a moment of obsession, well, it's really a long-term obsession, but a moment of that obsession manifest shows us that really complicated ambivalent relationship until he says, Oh my gosh, what have I done? And tries to blow the bridge and do the right thing. So then, so then I see at the end of the day, Nicholson, I mean, Nicholson then has to become a, a, a sort of Captain Ahab figure, except that he gets a moment of redemption at the end if if we want to give that to him, right? Because his obsession then, then he is obsessed with the bridge. It is building the bridge ultimately for a, a somewhat selfish gain. I mean, I guess it is in somewhat self, in some way selfless for the men, but is it really? I mean, this is his obsession. It's his obsession, but he's not leading a bunch of people to death with that obsession. He's actually leading them to purpose and hopefully prolonged life. And in most of those cases, I think that's true. I guess. I like him a lot less now that I know that the men were on that fucking train. (laughs) Well, I don't think you're supposed to be incredibly happy with Nicholson. I think you're supposed to have a complicated relationship with him. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So my thesis for this film is that this film skirts the epic and farce forms so well that it doesn't really fall victim to the issues of either. And okay. as a viewer, you're able then to sympathize or empathize with Nicholson, despite the obvious disconnect he experiences throughout the movie. So there are, there are times when everyone's behavior is very farcical Yeah, that it could almost be funny, but then there's also these just incredibly emotional moments that are very, straight laced and i don't want to say sentimental i'm trying to avoid using the word sentimental i think they're they're meaningful and they're empathic right and i think that's what this film's real strength is is that at the end of the day you can still root for nicholson even though it runs contrary to all that we know about World War II and good and evil and how we're supposed to have these completely one-sided heroes. Yeah, I I think you're right because I think the film does set us up to see, you know, the admirable parts of him. And and I mean his his idea of like let's build the bridge, let's give the men hope, let's let's keep their morale up, let's you know, and 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 his sort of um altruistic goal of like we'll leave something behind when this war is over for for all these burmese people oh i don't know if that's i don't know if that's altruistic necessarily to leave something behind is imperial right to have a legacy is to be somewhat self-centered right but he does not see it as imperialist at all i don't think right no but his name's on the plaque right it's the men of the british (laughs) army colonel nicholson true Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I, ugh. I want. To, I want to like what he's doing. I mean, I'm, I. The film worked. I mean, this is. I guess this is what I'm running into. Right? Is that? You, I think your thesis is right, and I think that this film really works in that way. I think the movie can only work if you are complicated about Nicholson. 
Yeah, because we because if he is the villain, right, then then it, the film then it is just a sort of masturbatory exercise, right? And if he is the hero and and succeeds, then like you said it runs counter to what we understand about World War II, right? In that he he has in some way helped the enemy. Uh, so Well, not yeah. even what we know about World War II, but what we think we know about it, right? This yeah. is 1957, we're fairly distant now you know, about a decade since World War II's end. And so I think you can be a little more critical, but we've kind of deified World War II in our modern image of it. And I think that undercuts this. And I think it does that in a way that is not just doom and gloom. It's not just polarized one way or the other. No, I I, I agree completely. Uh, And and I think... I think you're right in this idea that we have so much distance now from World War II that it does become, I mean, it is the, you know, it's our, it's, it's the Great War, right? I mean, I mean, I know that World War One is called the Great War, but this is what we, you know, in the sort of layman's terms, I don't know. And, and it is, you know, the, the war that, that of good versus evil where good wins. And so to complicate that, you know, or, or to show that it is a complicated thing it is important, Right. And and to show that these men are just men. Right. And I think that's why Saito even is a is a really interesting character, because, you know, we get to see him in these moments of weakness. We get to see him in these moments of frustration because, you know, he's not simply working for country. He he's trying not to have to fucking kill himself. Right. So the, the motivations of these men uh, are are three dimensional or at least, you know, not simply flat. Right, and I think pointing out the Saito stuff is very important because he is never just cardboard cutout, though at times he can feel that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and I thought a lot about this film, or I thought a lot about um, another film while I was watching this film, and that was the Angelina Jolie World War II film from a few years ago. Do you remember that uh, that film? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, geez. Um, it was a World War II film, and Angelina, it was Angelina Jolie's debut she directed it yeah it was her direct directorial debut unbroken unbroken oh the world war ii interned prisoner it doesn't become like an olympian at some point uh i think maybe he becomes an olympian after or something i don't know i don't yeah it's not during his imprisonment he becomes olympian yeah 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 i didn't know she directed that yes it was her it was her uh directorial debut and i i saw that film in the theater and this reminded me a lot of it because these are pow's uh the japanese are the the villains quote-unquote villains and what i found really disappointing in that film was the really sort of problematic portrayal of the the japanese soldiers the japanese officers uh, they were, I mean, there was a lot of very weird sort of gendered stuff. I mean, the, the, the villain becomes this sort of like effeminate, I don't know, d- demon, Japanese demon, you know? Um, and the hero is this very like sort of good white Christian man, uh, who, you know, by sheer force of will is able to resist, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, the char- the characters are cardboard cutouts. Uh, it, it was it was quite a disappointing film in in my opinion. Um, and so I I was expecting fairly early on to see, you know, these Japanese soldiers uh, and Saito in particular, 
uh, portrayed as little more than cardboard cutouts of the evil Japanese. And I was very pleasantly surprised to not see that happen in this film, right? So we see Saito frustrated. We see him, you know, change tacks to get what he what he wants, right? His his motivations are not simply, you know, to build a bridge there to save his own ass, right? Uh, he seems to have a sort of respect or or some sort of mutual agreement, right, with Nicholson by the end, and and he gets kind of a kind of a uh, kind of a shitty end, you know, for himself, right? He gets stabbed like in the back, basically. Yeah, but I also have concerns about what his actions were supposed to be in what became his final moments because he has a little Tonto blade with him that he keeps pulling out and keeps looking at. And I started to think at one point that he's going to stab Nicholson at the completion of the bridge to reassert his dominance here or he was going to kill himself. And, And I think the film was so good at this because I... I honestly can't say which he was actually going to do if given the opportunity. Well, and right. And we see that scene while, while the men are performing their little show uh, at the completion of the bridge. And it looked to me as though he was ready to, to commit ritual suicide, right? It looked as though he had written his suicide poem. He cuts his top knot off. Well, he's just cutting a little bit of hair. He doesn't have a top knot. Oh, I thought maybe he had a teeny tiny top knot. No, he just he's got a little bit of hair, and so he's got a picture, I think, of his wife on yeah, his little like his desk. Wife. So I don't know if he's writing a letter to her saying that I'm killing myself, or it's just a routine letter to her, and they're using the blade like that to, as a misdirect, but then it becomes more serious afterward. So I thought, again, just another nice couple of moments of ambivalence where I really couldn't tell characters' motivations, and we never get to see what happens with them either. So all of that to say, you know, I... I I was impressed by the fact that like these characters are ambivalent, all of them, right? You, I, you, it's hard to directly hate Saito. You know, he's not the clear villain in the way that I think that, you know, even a film from just a few years ago uh, that looks at, you know, a very similar topic uh, tr- treats the Japanese, right? Um, it, it seemed quite fair, strangely, to both the Brits and the, you know, or I guess the allies, but the Brits specifically and the Japanese. Yeah, I agree that it felt very different, but we are far afield of where we need to be in (laughs) terms of time. We should turn to our three questions. So what do we owe to this film? Um, Well, all I could think of when I knew this question was going to be asked of me was the little song that the men whistle. Colonel Bogey March. And it, all I could think of what I don't know if you've seen this film, but all I could think of was Spaceballs. <laughs> yeah, we definitely get that there. We've also got the Obi-Wan connection. Alec Guinness, who plays right. Nicholson, is, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original trilogy. Yes, which I, which I, you know what, I love thinking about Alec Guinness being cast as Obi-Wan uh, with this in his past. Because... And we'll talk about it when we get to Star Wars, but I think that Obi-Wan is such an interesting and ambivalent character himself. So to see, you know, Alec Guinness as a young man in a war film as a, you know, as a really ambivalent character, uh, I think that really lends something to his performance, you know, several years later in in Star Wars. Several years. I think it's 20 years. But Yeah, 20 years. Only could have been better <laughs> if Sashir Mufune actually got to be Darth Vader. 
Right, I know. How how fantastic, right? Yeah, so I agree. Colonel Bogey March comes to our cultural moment from this film. I also think that this film is unlike any war film I have seen. And when you said it was a war film at the beginning, I said, oh, is it? Because I thought this is such a different thing. It just happens to be set in like a war zone at the time. I mean, you're right. I think you're right. War is is not the focus of this film. This this is uh, war is just the set dressing, right? The perhaps the catalyst to bring these characters together. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about it today when thinking of answers to this question, and I wonder if all the stuff we note in the late '60s, early '70s, with our more ambivalent or more anti-hero esque. Mm-hmm protagonists if that doesn't get some of its dna from this film you know i think i i think you have a a a real point here i think that that absolutely could probably be traced in some small way back to here at least because yeah there there is this is this is ostensibly a war film where the heroes and the villains are it's very unclear as to who is what and why um and and we don't and like we said i mean we spent a, a whole ton of time discussing whether or not nicholson is even the protagonist or well i guess he's the protagonist like even if he's the hill the hero right um and 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 how we feel about him and if we feel good about him at the end and you don't do that in a straight we didn't do that in saving private ryan yeah certainly tom hanks is the hero <laughs> of that film and that's the end right. of the story so yeah i don't think any war movies really take a lot of notes from this one and i think they might be worse off for doing that because war is not a place of black and white although we often ascribe that to it because i think that makes it easier for us to stomach but a film like the bridge and the river kwai i think complicates that in a ethical fashion yeah and i would argue that that you know some of the stories in Tim O'Brien's things they carried hold a little bit of the DNA from this, right? The idea that there, this is on war is unclear, you know, it's, it's unclear whether you're good or you're bad or why you're doing what you're doing. I think that there's at least a little bit of, um, of this in that as well. And I'm certainly interested to read the book that this is based off of. It mm-hmm. has to be in translation. It's a French novel, but yes, the, I think it would uh, be interesting to, to see. The novelist also, this was the, the author of the the novel was the author of Planet of the Apes. Oh, well, another little connection there. Yes. Ethan, does this film hold up? I, You know what? I think so. Um, I, I think it really does. I, I honestly don't have much negative to say in this respect. I, I mean, it held my attention a hell of a lot more than I thought it was going to. And I was very interested to see it. And for a almost three-hour movie, it did a damn good job at that. It's very compelling. It keeps you with it. You're always, not necessarily on your toes because of tension, but you want to see how the plot develops. I will say, though, visually, something about Technicolor just is really rubbing me the wrong way now <laughs> after I've seen so much of it. Yeah. I think the films of the 70s look a lot better than the films of the 50s. Yeah. And that's not just a technology thing. It's the coloration they do. And there's actually a scene where you've got all of the British prisoners standing outside and the British officers are on the other side of the screen. 
And I think they've only colorized half the screen because I noticed like a complete grayscale on the left, almost like a black and white film, and then all the added color on the right. And that was such a bizarre thing. But as I got deeper into the film, I noticed it less and less. But yeah. there's something grainy about Technicolor. Maybe it's just the cameras, but I don't really have any issue with the films of the 40s or the black and white films of the 50s. But it's when they start making this move to Technicolor that I start to see like, oh, this could look better, I think. You know, now that you say that, and I think a little bit about that, I I think you're right. I mean, I think there is like a grainy quality. I think that there is... There, there is a sort of lack of like of real vividness, and I think you're right. Like the films that we've seen that that come shortly after this do tend to look just a little bit better. Uh, maybe not just a little bit better, but they look better enough that uh, you know I'm not worried about it. They still retain that sort of grainy analog quality that I think uh, is aesthetically pleasing, but it's not quite as. Uh, noticeable and it's not quite as detracting from the 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 rest of the film in a way that this film does do a a little bit less so i think perhaps for me than for you uh but now that you've pointed it out uh it's hard to disagree you know part of me wonders if this film was done in black and white if it would be rated a little bit higher uh, you know i i think maybe you might have a point honestly and i don't know that this film would lose that much from black and white no i think it's his own thing and i think the themes and mood or atmosphere of the film matches black and white so i could definitely see this you know something like last picture show works even though it's so late to have black and white as like a you know a necessary thing because of its themes its atmosphere its mood and i i see that working with this one as well so i agree they, I they agree might have been using technicolor only because it was something that was new, right? It's innovative at the time. Yeah. Well, Ethan, our final question. Do we care about this film? You know, I I think we do. I I mean, I think I do. Uh, If only for the fact that it is, it is, you know, it is an epic film, uh, but it does a lot of things to sort of undermine its epic status. Um, And I think it, it, it really plays with that bit of genre in that it leaves us without an epic hero, right? We do not have a a final epic hero in the straightforward epic way, right? I think it is something that, that perhaps begins to shepherd us into that seventies anti-hero moment, late sixties, seventies moment that you've, like you've pointed out, I, I think if only for that, it, it is, it is worth it. I think it, it is a fan. I think Alec Guinness's performance is, is worthy of, uh, you know, note, I guess. And, and I, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think we do. Yeah. I would definitely say I care about this film. I agree that Alec Guinness's performance is great. I think William Holden as Shears is fine. You know, I, I know he's a big star at the time and that's why they want him for that. But, and this is our second appearance of him. I think at least our second. Yeah. He was in wild bunch. Right? He's one of the main characters. And, in the and wild network. Bunch. Or th- so it's his third, opi- third appearance network too. Yeah. He's not in the Dustin Hoffman area of appearances yet. I think there might be someone just a little bit higher than him in yeah. number of major roles, but we will consult all that at the end. when We tally the <laughs> score, so to speak, but 
I think Guinness does a great performance in this, and I think this is a film that I will think about for quite some time. Yes, I think it's a film that's gonna, that's going to stick with me for a while. I think that's a great way to put it, Matt. Is that a film that we'll continue to think about? Because there have been some films on this list that have been uh, that that literally we they have been forgettable because you or I or both have forgotten about them, right? And I don't think this is going to be one of them. I agree. And th- speaking of continuing to think about films, you are able to go to Patreon now and listen to this week's bonus content episode, super secret yes. bonus content for our patrons of the arts. We are staying in World War II, sort of, with sort of. 2018's Overlord. Overlord. Bit of a science fiction take, a little bit alternate history. Well, not so alternate history. I guess you could say like it's historical fiction with a lot of liberties taken in the historical <laughs> category. <laughs> a lot of the fiction, maybe not a whole lot of historical. Sure. Let's call it historical science fiction. Make a whole new genre from it. Yes. But in order to get back on our AFI list, get back on track with that, you will hear another episode of the AFI number 35's Annie Hall next week. Yes. So until then, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Madness. Spoilers. Madness. Spoilers! There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.